Yodi Tobin was a cherished teacher and director of the Matan Bellows Eshkelo Educators Institute for Tanakh at Matan. Jodi was genuinely dedicated to Jewish studies and an inspiration to her many students and colleagues. Jodi was a friend and colleague of mine for the past 13 years. We first met as students in Matan, I the young fruit of the group and she more mature. When I think of the word vitality or chayut, I've always thought of her. Glowing bright skin, effervescent energy, positivity, unending desire to grow in mind and spirit. What a human, part of an amazing family web. Dodi was taking from us this week, and what a loss it is for her children, for her husband, for her grandchildren, and for the thousands of people who loved and were inspired by her. Dodi was one of the most genuine people I ever knew. We want to dedicate this week's episode in her memory, Miriam Dodi Batchana Yocheved V'Yehuda Lev. It's an episode about the role of happiness in our religious lives. What a fitting topic for such a bright soul. Dodi, we miss you already. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. I want to update you regarding several exciting events at Matan before moving to the Parsha. Matan will be marking 35 years of women's Torah learning with a Yishai Rebo concert at the Jerusalem Theater on October 8th or the 13th of Tishrei, right before Sukkot. If you will be here in Israel, we would love to see you there. Registration for the coming academic year is well underway. Please check out the Matan website for all relevant information. Matan will be running its annual Elul program from September 11th through the 22nd, or the 15th to the 26th of Elul. The Elul program is a great opportunity to get a taste of Matan and recharge for the coming year. There are parallel Hebrew and English programs. Check out our website and all social media platforms for more information. Lastly, if you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Parshat Ki Tavo opens with the bringing of one's first fruits to the Mikdash and the moving verbal recitation that accompanies it. The elders are then commanded to record the Torah on monuments, which will later be erected in the land of Israel. This is followed by a series of blessings and curses which are to be recited on the mountains of Grizim and Eval in Israel, an event which indeed takes place in the book of Yoshua. This is followed by what is usually called the blessings and curses, 14 verses describing the fecundity and providence that is bestowed upon those who follow God's commandment, and 54 verses describing all the horrific phenomena that befall those who don't listen to God's commands. These are verses traditionally read in a lowered voice. They really are disturbing in their description of infertility of humans in the land of Israel, war, plague, and other catastrophes. In the past, particularly our episode on Parshat B'chukotai, and in my series with Tanya White on suffering, we touched upon the theological questions inherent in the black and white formula of reward and punishment presented by sections in the Torah, such as this one in Kitavo. My partner in conversation today is Rivi Frankel, who is a director of programming at Midrashat Emunavo Manut. She is a graduate of the Matan Bellows Eshkelot Institute, where she also worked as the administrative director and director of the professional development track. Rivi teaches Tanakh at various institutions and is a licensed Israeli tour guide. 
Today, Rivi will be speaking with us about Rabbi Avram Tversky Zatzal's definition of happiness and how that relates to our Parsha and to our religious life. Rivi, it's a pleasure to finally have you here. Sefa, I'm so excited to be doing this with you. So before we begin speaking about sort of the content of our of our episode today, can you first bring us a little bit into the life and, and work of Rabbi Avram Tversky? Sure. So Rabbi Avram Yoshua Heschel Tversky was born in Milwaukee in 1930 in October. Uh, and he actually passed away relatively recently uh, in January 2021 of COVID here in Yerushalayim. He is the grandson through his mother of the Baba Varebi. He comes from a very long, illustrious line of Hasidic dynasty. So on his mother's side, he's Babav. His mother was the second daughter of the Baba Varebi. And on his father's side, he's a descendant of Menachem Nachem Tursky, who was the founding Rebbe of Chernobyl. And so in a lot of what he does and a lot of what he speaks about, both in his practice as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, and also in his uh, religious rabbi practice, he brings a lot of that wealth of uh, inheritance that he got from his family, uh, from the, the Hasidic movement that is so prevalent in not just his family, but also in his home. Uh, he gets smicha and he works in Milwaukee at his father's shul for about eight years as the assistant rabbi. And then he decides to do something which he himself called uh, called himself a trailblazer, which was to go to secular college. And uh, at the time, now we see in the Hasidic community that there are many more people that do that. But uh, at the time, there was a big fear about the connection between secularism and anti-religion. And Rabbi Dr. Tversky felt very strongly that those two things didn't necessarily have to clash. And so he goes to, to university and then he goes on to medical school. Uh, he graduates and moves to Pennsylvania and to Pittsburgh. And in 1972, he founds the Gateway Rehab Center. And that was his center for dealing, helping people deal with addictions. Most of the people in the center were not Jews, but there were many, many Jews that did benefit. And he brought the topic of addiction, eventually also spousal abuse, to the Jewish community, general mental health awareness, uh, self-esteem, happiness. All of these are topics that he is somebody who was so intimately familiar from both the religious perspective and being a member of the religious community, but also from uh, a psychological and a psychiatric perspective, um, really brought a, a beautiful kind of combination of these two topics to our community. Um, there, his, his granddaughter tells a beautiful story uh, how he would walk home from shul in Pennsylvania on Shabbos after, uh, morning after shul, and uh, people would literally roll down their car windows as they're driving by. Hey, Rabbi T, Dr. T, I'm five years clean. Good on you. Is that your <laughs> granddaughter? Like they would just, all of these people who were part of the community who recognized him. Now, obviously, he looked like a Hasidic rabbi, so he was pretty identifiable as he walked down the street. But the impact that he had, not just on the Jewish world, but on the world in general, um, was huge in terms of saving, as we know, when you save one life, it's as if you're saving the world. And he saved countless worlds. And the impact that those people then went on to have uh, is really immeasurable. His own approach to Torah um, is, in terms of his own Torah teaching, is a really, really interesting combination. He actually is a very practical thinker, which you might imagine going to medical school, you, you could see that. Um, and the 12-step program really uh, is something that resonated with him, practical way. He said, you can go to psychoanalyze yourself, and he talks a lot about Musser uh, in his psychoanalyst uh, suggestions and teachings, but he said, if you're not willing to take action, if you're not gonna be able to have a defined way of accomplishing something, then it doesn't matter how much you think. 
the other piece that's really interesting about him is his coming to understand the biochemistry part of psychiatry and how Musser sometimes isn't enough. He, he tells a, he quotes in one of his books, he's written over 90 books, but he, he quotes in one of his books um, a, a, a story that is from the Midrash and Tanhuma. And it's a story about a, a family whose father, the, the father figure in the family, is struggling with um, alcohol addiction. And so he drinks a lot. And they bring him to see this other drunk lying on the street to kind of like wake him up, a real intervention. And when they get there, so they're waiting for, for their father's reaction, he leans over to the guy and he says, hey, where'd you get that really good wine from? And they realized <laughs> that at that point, the, the, the continuation of, of Rabbi Tversky's point in bringing this is that at a certain point, Musser's not enough, right? At a certain point, you do need an intervention. And bringing that to the religious community in terms of awareness that there is room for Musser. He saw dealing with issues of self-esteem and all of these different pieces of um, self-help, if you will, as part of a religious practice, but also recognizing sometimes people needed more help. So in his book, he, he, he writes the following, a quote that I brought, one cannot consider oneself to be truly observant if one neglects Musser. The psychological mechanism of denial, which can blind a person to even the most obvious self-destructive behavior. So he saw all of this as one whole picture. Before he passed away, he said that he didn't want there to be any eulogies at his funeral. Instead, he actually composed a relatively famous tune to Hoshiat Etamecha um, that Chabad actually took. The Lubav Cherebi sang it. And so it's very popular through Chabad in that way also. And he just wanted people to sing that. Hoshiat Etamecha, which really was the driving force in so much of what he did. And not just in terms of his own actions, but we can actually see in the consequences of his ac actions uh, that he was really able to succeed in saving so many of Amecha, whether through addiction practices and addiction help, or even just helping our own happiness and self-esteem. So first of all, thank you for that entry into his world. His name is one that I've heard my entire life, but I, I really never delved so deeply into, into his writings. And I guess I want to point out perhaps what might be the obvious, and whether or not it's obvious depends on who's listening to this podcast. If the listener is someone who is of slightly of an older generation and they're living in Chutzaretz outside of Israel or is from there, then they'll probably know his name. But for those who are listening who are younger, okay, so let's put them in the, you know, 30s and below category, uh, they are growing up in a world or grew up in a world where mental health or discussions of these kind are more commonplace. Now, of course, that's extremely relative depending on where someone's from, what was accepted, where they, in what kind of community they came from. But I think that for anyone listening who's of that category, one needs to realize that while it is clear from what you're saying that he was really a maverick, um, that really shouldn't be understated. He was speaking about this decades, I mean decades before there was any sort of broader awareness, certainly in the general American public and definitely in the religious world. Uh, and he sort of was bringing what was more known professionally, more or less depending on the topic he was studying, and bringing it into your average Jewish community. I'll also maybe also state the obvious, which is that he would be what in Israeli terms we would call on the more Haredi side of things. And that's another tremendous contribution of his, which is that he brought, and we, we know this, the more 
um, closed the community is, the more it'll take for them to adopt conversations. And he called it Musar, but let's talk about mental health, which is what we would sort of call it in, in, in other circles. But to take morality and mental health and bring it into communities that are also more closed in the religious practice is also something that should not be understated. And and the fact that he was rooted in a world of chassidut and, and all the places he comes from it sort of enabled him to be part of those worlds and bring all the skills he gained from his unbelievable choices to go and receive the education he did and bring it back into the religious world. So I just wanted to sort of emphasize that for for all of us to realize really how unbelievable and towering of a figure he, he really was. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, I I won't bring you the Yiddish part of the quote because I'll probably butcher it, but the very famous Shalom Aleichem quote, it's hard to be a Jew. Yeah. And that generation that, that Rabbi Dr. Torsky was living in, that was kind of the feeling, especially in terms of religious Judaism. And so that idea that not only is the the privilege of being Judaism about happiness, which is what we're going to talk about today in connection to the Parsha, but this idea that being a Jewish person is actually uh, the the greatest joy and privilege that a person can have when he brings that to his generation is exactly what you're talking about. It's that gift. And, and like he called himself trailblazing and it was really not something that was talked about. So thank you. Amazing. So how does this come into play in our Parsha? So as you mentioned, we have this very intense hard section in this week's Parsha, which are these curses and all these horrible things that have the potential to happen to the Jewish people. And at the very end of that list of horrible things, God actually gives us the reason of why these things happen to us. And the reason that we're given is, is I think, relatively surprising when the first time you hear it. It's in uh, chapter 28, verse 47, where it says, because you didn't serve God with simcha, which I'm purposely not going to translate yet, and tuvlevav with a, a good heart, a full heart, that's why all of this stuff is happening. And when we pause for a second and we think to ourselves what I think is a very obvious question, how is that possible? Are you meaning to tell me that if I daven and I keep Shabbos and kosher and all those things, and I do it, uh, I would say like a moody teenager maybe, that that's why all these curses are going to happen. What is going on here? What is the, what's the secret? I think there really is that uh, we have to unlock here. And so Rabbi Torsky, I think really gives us not only a definition for happiness that explains this, but a practical, because he, he was in so much of his writings, and I really recommend to people um, to, to go out and read one or two of his books um, on a topic that speaks to you, because there were many, many topics that he wrote about in the mental health space and the self-help space. Um, but I think that his very practical approach of not just, oh, here's what happiness is, and now we feel all good and, and warm and fluffy inside, but how do I achieve that, uh, I think is really one of the secrets to his greatness. So I think the first thing that, that we have to do, which I, I very purposefully and intentionally did not do in, in the original reading of the verse of the Pasuk, was define what simcha is. So according to Rabbi Tversky, simcha in essence is an outgrowth. Simcha is a state of being that comes from having emunah and bitachon. So now hold on, because I know I said that it wasn't going to be these big topics and there was going to be practical information. So stay with me, because I know that's a big statement to say. But... The idea of having not just faith in God or not just the, the knowledge that God exists in the world or created the world, but a trust that what God does is ultimately for the good. Doesn't mean it feels good. 
that the simcha or, or what we're going to now call happiness or joy is an outgrowth of that. So there's a Gemara in Brachel, and the Gemara says that a person should accept divine judgment, whether it feels good or bad divine judgment, the same way with happiness. And Rashi on this Gemara says that happiness here means a complete heart, which is really interesting because we see that in the Pasuk already, right? So we there has to be some sort of difference between Tuvlevav, this good heart, this complete heart, and Simcha. But Rashi is putting us already on the path that happiness doesn't mean that I'm clapping and I feel good, which I think for a lot of people is the hump that the first hump that we need to get over. Because the idea that I can be happy and be really sad at the same time, or I can have simcha and be angry at the same time, I think is a novel concept. And I think that when we define simcha as happiness, we lose a little bit of what the intention is, which is this state of being of, I can be upset, I can not understand, I can be angry, I can be confused, and yet there is a contentment in my life that is this outgrowth of this Amuna and bitachon. The Gemara then also continues to add that trying to understand Hashem is foolish, which I think also uh, when, when you ask the big question, why do bad things happen to good people, right? Or any question about suffering, it's not satisfying. Usually the answers aren't satisfying because at the end of the day, we can't understand God. And so the question really is, how do I deal with why do bad things happen to good people? And I think that that is very connected to this definition of simcha, to this definition of, of what happiness really means. And again, we'll come back to, we'll circle around to how this could really be a cause for all these horrible things that happen or might happen as a result of not living a life with simcha. One of the phrases that I, I like to stick into this conversation is the response, meaning there's no answers, but it's a question of how we respond to the things that happened. Are we responding with the difficulty, the challenge, the anger, the disappointment, still with a sense of content, or are we responding with a sense of emptiness? There's nothing wrong with being empty, but I think maybe the Parsha, and you can tell me to stop from skipping too far ahead, but the Parsha sort of getting to this place of saying, ultimately, someone's seal of their worship of God needs to be from a place of satiety and content, and that will inform all of what you do. But it doesn't mean that it eliminates everyone's natural feelings that they're going to have. But that's already a question of how do I respond to what happened? I'm not going to find answers. I'm not going to know why. Sometimes I may be able to figure out a little bit of the mystery, but ultimately if we focus on how do we respond to it, that puts us in, on a much better track than than the answer one. Yeah, and I think also the the follow up to that is it's the same thing with happiness right meaning it's and, and I, it's a hard when you have this conversation in english because i'm going to say happiness and i don't mean simcha in this sense but when i'm in a space of feeling really good things are going my way i'm not feeling upset i also have to remember that i don't necessarily know why that's happening now too and what am i going to respond to my happiness with? How am I going to use this moment of feeling elated, of feeling joy, of, of, of life working out for me? And I think that's part of what the Gemara is saying and part of what Rashi's definition here is that we, we tend to focus on it when it's in response to negative things that happen to us. But how am I going to take my luck? I don't like that word. You can't see I'm doing air quotes, but like, how do I take the 
the good things that are happening to me and respond to them with that same question and maybe even that same emotion, which is really hard. And I think that that's part of the message of the Gemara and part of where ultimately we're going to go in terms of the definition of Simcha and our Parsha. Of course, it also bespeaks the the human condition, which is that we notice negative much more than we notice positive. And that's a psychological reality. You know, I, I think about this all the time. You know, for all the 55 positive things you could do with a friend, with a spouse, with a child, you mess up once, and that's that's the one that people remember. So in this particular moment, the Gemara is saying it's very, very easy to focus your questions on, this is the part that you're adding that I don't usually think about when I learn this Gemara, but it's very easy to focus on the negative side of things and get stuck there, but you also need to go and think about the positive side as well. You don't just take that for granted. You figure out how to use it and channel it into the things you're doing. Exactly. It's a beautiful point. Um, and it's interesting because Rabbi Tversky, often when we're talking about the negative versus the positive, modern psychology, he talks about the fact that it's so resolution-based, right? What resolution am I going to come to? And sometimes whether it's that positive negative balance in a human relationship or in a God relationship or in a self relationship, sometimes there's no resolution. And the Torah perspective on this Musr and the, these questions, very often we will find don't necessarily focus on coming to some sort of resolution. Torah begs of us to live in the ambiguous space, to live in the gray space. And our human brains, we don't like that. We want there to be definitions. We want there to be black and white. We want to have answers. And so that kind of, I'm not going to have an answer. And what am I going to do when I don't have an answer is that same, how do I live in that space where not everything is going to be tied up in a nice bow? And I think that the more we experience life, we see that that's reflected in life too. Not all situations tie up in the way that gives us closure, and that's okay. I think one of the practical things that Rabbi Tversky does, so um, he, he talks about a lot how we have animal instincts, right? That we, um, he, he mentions a quote in Eov that we're, we're born like the, the wild donkey, or um, this idea that when we were created, we were created in an uncompleted state. And he says, it's true that we have animal instincts and it's true that we try and not necessarily rise above them, but develop beyond them. Uh, but there's a lot that we can learn from animals. And one of his Michelin that he talks about uh, is the lobster. And that actually a lobster starts to get uncomfortable and starts to feel like they don't fit into their shell. And so that pain actually drives them to hide under some sort of rock or something so that they can't be found by a predator while they're trying to figure out how do I deal with being in pain. Hmm. And it's that moment when, like the psychology of a lobster, right? But it's that moment when I'm also they're- laughing because you know Jordan Peterson has a thing about the lobster. I have not heard Jordan Peterson. Okay, Jordan we'll leave it on the, the side lobster. for now. Okay. But this is hilarious that Rich was talking about lobsters decades before the That's Jordan really Peterson. That's really interesting. Okay, okay. We'll talk about that I actually after. just bought his 12 rules book. I'm, I'm well, not a Jordan Peterson. Okay. I know this is not our podcast thing, but- I, We'll I'm, talk about it after. Yeah, so we're going, on, back, <laughs> we're going back to, to Rabbi Tversky's uh, lobster metaphor. He's uncomfortable. He's right. hiding away from predators. And it's at that moment when he's in that pain that his shell actually falls off and mm. he begins to be able to grow a bigger shell. Wow. If that lobster was a human being, he would go to his doctor and say, I hurt. And if it was a physical hurt, the doctor would give him medication. And if it's a psychological hurt, the doctor might also give him medication. Um, but everything would be about the resolution of that pain. 
And what Rabbi Tversky says that we learned from the lobster is that it's dafko when you specifically when you don't try and get rid of all the pain that that's where the growth comes. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of resolution and of conflict resolution and of everything kind of even in terms of suffering and, and, and having bitachon in that moment, sometimes it's when we are in that pain and we don't try and, and just get rid of it or put a Band-Aid on it, that's when our ultimate growth will come. And that's when our next step of development will come. And he says this actually beautifully in connection to a Pasuk in Breshit, in the creation of man, where Hashem says, Let's go make man. And this lets, right? Let us, uh, this, this plural, na'aseh, and then it's later in our image and in our, um, in our tselem, right? In our demut. Who's the R? Who's God talking to? Now, of course, we, we have a lot of, of negative Torah commentaries here that, oh, there must be more than one God, right? There's a, a very large outgrowth of, of criticism here. Rashi very famously, probably even I think most famously, says he's talking to the malachim, and here we learn anava, right? We learn the the uh, humility of bringing people who are not on our same managerial level, let's put it, um, and yet still bringing them into the picture. Uh, the Ramban actually beautifully says that he's talking, God's talking to the world, right? To the Aretz, let us together, right? I'm making it of the land. We've gone through this process together where every stage of creation is involved in the creation of, of the highest form of creation, which is man. Rabbi Tversky beautifully says that God's actually talking to man. And this is the first moment of covenant between God and humankind. Let us make man. I'm going to start with the demut. I'm going to start with the tselm. I'm giving you the form. And what happens after that is up to you. And so when we talk about the need for simcha, for contentment, Rabbi Tversky says real happiness comes from self-development. Real happiness is that even when you're lobster uncomfortable under the rock, but you're working to fulfill your ultimate potential, that's happiness. If I can jump in for a minute Please. to the creation story. That's always how I really understand what guides Adam and Chava to ultimately eat from the fruit? Um, because they, they want to be like God. And you can look at it very simply and say, well, they want to be like God. They want to have God's powers. But I always understood it as they just want to be bigger than themselves. Meaning Adam and Chava are guided by an internal desire of Cook picks this up in a different context, but they're guided by an internal desire to constantly make themselves bigger than they are. And you look around the world and there are some people that you can see on the outside are constantly driven by that. It's not people, it's not about career, it's not about their achievements, but they're constantly driven by a need to be more. Like I want to be more this year than what I was last year. There are other people who want to, who run away from that, meaning it's something that intimidates them. But ultimately, I think Safer Bray Sheet and, and other thinkers later on really explain that that is what ultimately drives us. Now, so drive us to do good things, drive us to do bad things. That's already the continuation of the story. But but I, I think that that's an, an unbelievable idea. And I think it's reflected, as you're saying, Rav Tversky saying, in the Nase Adam. Um, but I think it's also there right at the beginning of this desire to just be more than I was yesterday. It's really interesting that you point that out because one of the things that Rabbi Tversky talks about is what addiction is, is in essence a search for happiness that gets confused with pleasure that then goes astray. 
And so when you're talking about Adam and Chava and their desire to be bigger, right? That's built into them. Yeah. And then it goes astray. Mm-hmm. And very often with addicts, that's that's a lot of what he talked about was that he he, he very funnily said, I was listening to uh, a recording that he did about 10 years ago. And he said, I've never myself done cocaine, but they tell me that it's really good. He's like, and I don't doubt them. It probably feels really good. I, not probably. He's saying like he he understands where addicts are coming from. That mm-hmm. high is something. But when we're looking at contentment, when we're looking at fulfillment, when we're looking at drive, what addiction ultimately is, is humanity taking what was built in for us to succeed and taking it in an unhealthy way. Now, sometimes that unhealthiness, like he talked about, was brain chemistry, right? There are people that are um, more prone to addiction from familial reasons and- and, Genetic. uh, Exactly. Mm -hmm. But what he talks about so often is that there's also the human component. And this is where he really strived to understand the difference between what he was learning in his Musser world of, are you just being lazy? Or is it a brain thing or is it a combination? And at what point does a person say, even if I'm predisposed to something, that I'm taking responsibility? Real happiness is standing up and saying, I am taking responsibility for who I am. How does this all fit into, because you didn't serve God, with Simcha? If I keep Shabbos, but I do it without the drive of it making me a better person, of it making me a better person in terms of my morality and my relationship with the world, myself with God, I've missed the point of Shabbos. Mm. If I keep any mitzvah without simcha, without this background of God's relationship in the world, my covenant with God, what did the beginning of the parsha talk about with Bikurim, right? It's about renewing this covenant, this relationship. And then later on in the parsha, it talks about taking care of the widows and it talks about taking care of poor people and being responsible for community. If I do any mitzvah and I don't have simcha in it, I don't have that drive to develop myself, to be content, to be a better person in the world, a better member of society, a better servant of God, then there was no point in me keeping the mitzvah. That means that all of these horrible things happen because we as humankinds, we specifically in this situation as as Jews, have not met up to our purpose in the world. It means that we aren't doing what we're supposed to do and the world can't tolerate us. Eretz Yisrael literally will need to spit us out because we aren't developing and we aren't growing and we aren't being who we are in essence supposed to be. I heard Rabbi David Aaron, who is a different personality for a different time, but he once said on uh, when I was I was a Madricha on his summer program, and so I got to take all of his classes, and it was wonderful. And he said, if Judaism is not making you happy, you're doing Judaism wrong. Mm-hmm. And going back to that quote of Shalom Aleichem, it's hard to be a Jew. I think that Rabbi, what Rabbi Tversky inherited from his Hasidic lineage and what he observed in the world was. No, hefech, the opposite. There's joy and, and pain potentially, but ultimately the best people that we can become is because of the mitzvot and because of our relationship with God and because of the happiness and who we are that we add to it. I will add one thing about Rabbi Tversky's practical approach. He said, if you want to be a happy person, if you want to be a good servant of God, read and learn about tzaddikim. Read and learn about people 
who did it, who walked in the way where their presence in the world brought light to the world and thereby brought simcha to themselves and to everybody. And I hope that today in a little bit of learning who Rabbi Tversky was and what his thought was, that we've learned from him and his light to be able to bring simcha and positivity and bracha, not only to our own lives, uh, but to the world around us. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.